Hey, good evening. Uh, we like to read the Bible here. Um, if you're new, my name is Jason. I'm a pastor here at the house, and, uh, and I'd love to meet you if I don't, if I don't know you. Um, uh, it's good to be with you tonight. Um, how many of you uh, here have been to a wedding? Raise your hand. How many of you have been to a wedding, maybe since you've been a teenager or something? Yes, get them out. I just want to know the context because we're talking a lot about weddings tonight. Um, when, when you're at somebody else's wedding, what do you think about? Love. Oh, that's such a good answer. <laughs> it's probably Andrew. Uh, especially if you're single and young, what do you suppose most people think about, Right. I think, I think a lot of people, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've worked in college ministry for 14 years. And uh, <laughs> on a sour note, like there's eight marriages between my parents. I've been to a lot of weddings, okay? Um, and I think when you're at other people's weddings, a lot of people think about their own wedding a lot. Even after marriage, my wife and I sometimes at other people's weddings will reflect back on our own. But, but if you're young and single and you're at another wedding, you probably are thinking things like this. Will I ever get married? What will my wedding be like? Uh, I'd never do something like that. Um, what do I even think about marriage? Am I going to marry the person I'm interested in right now? Can I get this process started on the dance floor? Something like that, right? Um, uh, and, and the story we're looking at tonight um, is, is about Jesus at a wedding. And I think he, like most of us, is thinking about his own wedding at this one. All right, let's pray real quick and we're going to get into this text. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, we ask that you um, descend upon us and help us know um, what you're revealing to us through your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. May you receive them well, be kind and good to us, and help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so um, tonight's going to be a little thick. Get your Bibles open to John chapter 2. Get something to write on if you need it. Buckle up. All right, um, I need to ask you another question. If God came to earth again and lived among us in the flesh for like 30 years without anyone really knowing, and then he decided he was going to do some sign which would begin to reveal who he is and what he's about, what do you think he would do? What would God do that would help us believe who he is? He's been among us, one of us, sitting in rooms like this, unknown, for 30 years. And then he decides to have a coming out party. What would he do? What would he do that would begin to tell us what he's like? It might surprise us to see just what he did some 2,000 years ago when this happened. For the first miracle Jesus did was something done in some no-name town for some forgotten crowd and he stayed under the radar the whole time. When our story begins, John has to tell everybody that Cana is in Galilee because nobody's heard of it. There's a wedding that week in Cana, and Jesus and his family are celebrating with the bride and groom. And Jesus is probably sitting somewhere off to the side with those first few friends that he called to follow him. We call them his disciples. They sat under him and learned from him. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and other Gospels called Bartholomew. And probably John, that's an unnamed disciple. And if John's there, it's very likely his brother James is with him. So we've got like five or six of his closest friends. We know that they are there, not because it's like some, you know, uh, deep PhD study, but because the verses right before this one say all that, okay. Um, so we're not sure how long the wedding's been going on, but it was common in those days for weddings to last up to a whole week. 
And we can assume that it's not the beginning of the celebration. Why? Because the wine had run out. And at that time, in that culture, running out of wine would have brought shame, particularly upon the bridegroom, the man. You see, it was the groom's responsibility to provide food and drink for the community of people. And there is even some evidence now in recent years that's come out that brides, the bride's family in that culture might have had legal reasons to bring charges against a guy who couldn't provide enough food and wine for a wedding reception. So this is the predicament that we're sort of dropped into in this story in John chapter 2. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to her son and she tells him about the problem. And this is when the story starts to get interesting. So Jesus hadn't done any miracles yet. He's 30 years old. So, so what really is Mary expecting? Perhaps you could say she remembers the angelic words and the miraculous conception from 31 years ago. But how long for her, for any of us, before the miraculous seems really far away? It's been three decades since that star in the sky and the angels singing and the backwoods birth. Three decades of a good boy who learned obedience and honored his parents. There's some reason to believe from some of the textual uh, things that are happening here that Jesus might even be the head of his household at this point. Potentially Joseph has died already. But without performing any miracles and just being a guest at this wedding, what does Mary suppose he would do? Why does she bring this problem to him? When she brings this question to her son, his response is really strange. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And if that question strikes you as a bit insensitive, you're onto something, right? That is really, it's a really very strange thing. And actually, in all of ancient Greek, I've studied it all. No, I haven't. I read it somewhere. In all of ancient Greek, we have zero examples of any other son in the ancient Greek world ever calling his mother by this word. It's actually a fine word. It's a respectful sort of ma'am or something kind of word. Like, it's not, you know, bad or any, any kind of way. It's just strange to hear son referring to his mother in this way. It's not mean, it's respectful, but it's a bit too distanced and proper to use with a mother. Something is going on here. Woman, what does this have to do with me? In any case, after he says this to Mary, what does she do? She goes into a fit, says, don't you dare talk to me like that. No, she doesn't. She turns to the servants and she tells them, standing right there in this context, she tells them to do whatever Jesus commands. And the servants take the giant stone water jars sitting right next to them. And John tells us that these stone water jars were used for Jewish cleansing rites. These water jars, which every single wedding guest would have cleansed themselves with. These water jars, which were used regularly during the sacrifices which the people of Israel offered regularly. These jars he commanded to fill to the brim with water. Fill them to the brim. With water, And then he commanded them to draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast would have been something like, if you can smush these together, an MC, an event planner, and the manager of a restaurant. Okay? Come on, right? These weddings were a huge deal. It was a week long, like I said, and somebody had to be set aside to make sure everything ran pretty smoothly, right? So the servants take some of this water, and they bring it to the master of the ceremonies, the master of the feast. And somewhere between the jar and that man's mouth, the water became wine. Here's your miracle. We're not even sure exactly when it happened. One person says of this, there are no fireworks, just a deep satisfaction. 
We learn of the miracle through nothing visual, but as often through a human conversation. And when this master of ceremonies tasted this wine, he exclaimed that it was better than any wine he'd tasted so far or any wine that had been served at this wedding so far. And that's when this story comes back into something normal that we can completely understand. We can totally understand why the master of ceremonies is puzzled. Most people serve the best wine first. Why? Because after they've been drinking a while and their taste buds are dulled and they're drunk, they don't care if the last bottle's any good. The logic then is the same as the logic now. But this is a surprise finish. The best wine lasts. And it really, it has me wondering, and I think this quite a bit, um, if we love come-from-behind stories, if we love underdog stories, if we love David and Goliath stories because there's an echo of the truth of the universe in them, here too is the same thing. The best wine is served last, just in the nick of time. Why? The crowd didn't know they'd run out. The master of the ceremonies who's responsible for this whole thing in this moment doesn't know they've ran out. And the groom gets all the credit. Maybe he was clueless and he didn't know it would run out. Or maybe they were tight on money and he was hoping everyone would stick to a two-drink limit. Maybe he was hoping that people would start to go home before they ran out. Whatever the circumstance, Jesus did the work and the groom gets the credit. Isn't that just like him? And the story concludes with one small sentence. And his disciples believed in him. And his disciples believed in him. John tells us that this was the very first miracle Jesus did to reveal his glory. And out of all the stories and all the miracles, why does John tell us this one? Yes, if it's first, but if you, if you remember last week, I mentioned that John was highly selective in this narrative, in this gospel narrative, the gospel of John. He tells us later near the end um, that Jesus did far more than he could ever write about. But where the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell of 20 or so major miracles, John only lists seven. And this is a story no one else recounts, the wedding at Cana, from the very first week of Jesus' public ministry. It's obscure, it's subtle, Sure, it's a miracle. I don't, want to, I don't want to downplay that. That's most of us, maybe not most, some of us would be very excited if Jesus turned 150 gallons of water into wine. Uh, but most people at this wedding, they didn't even know it happened. Get that in the story. Most people didn't even know what had happened. They just thought the groom had a secret stash of the best stuff out back. We're told nothing of the faith of the groom or the bride, or the master of the ceremonies, or even the servants who knew of the miracle were only told that the disciples believed in him. And remember, there were probably only five or six disciples at this point. And all of them in the past few days had left what they were doing to follow Jesus. All of them in just this last week. They must have believed in him in some sense already to have done that. John, interestingly, only credits Nathaniel with believing in Jesus in this kind of way, though. At the end of chapter one, you can read it. And it, it brings this question to my mind, right? Is it true that we can be hanging out with Jesus right there in his midst, eating with him, socializing with him, hearing his words, knowing about him, but still needing to believe? This text and many others tell me that it's true. And so we come again to what I said last week, that John wrote this entire gospel in order that whoever reads it 
might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and that we might believe in him. And the question remains, how does this story help us do that? How does this story help us believe that Jesus is the Christ? How does this story help us know God? And, and what does it mean here to believe in him? First, I want to say this. The words Christ and Messiah will come up often over the course of this semester. Would you put that slide up, Ashley, if you got it? The one with Christ and Messiah. I want to help make something really clear just for a second. Right? The word Messiah, it literally means anointed one. The Israelites believed that God um, had chosen a person who would be sent to save them, and they called this person the Messiah. That's a Hebrew word. And by the time Jesus comes around, the common language of the Roman Empire was Greek. And when they translated Messiah into Greek, the word was Christ. They mean the exact same thing, the anointed one. The anointed one. And for the Jew, this word is pregnant with notions of kingship and salvation. When they thought of Messiah, they, there was a bunch of prophetic ideas wrapped up in this. I might, honestly, I might use these words pretty interchangeably throughout the rest of the semester, Messiah and Christ. They mean the same thing. But know this, that when John says that he wants his readers to know that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying that the promises that God made to Israel, you can read about them in the Old Testament, were pointed at and culminated in Jesus. Let me say that again. When John uses the word Christ, when he says Jesus is the Christ, and I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying all of the promises God made for the 2,000 years before this were pointing to and culminated in the very person of Jesus. Friends, it, 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 some, if you don't know the, the, the story of the Israelites, if you don't know the Old Testament narrative, there's a good chance that so often Jesus is the answer to a question you're not even asking yet. I highly submit that you come talk to me or somebody. We'll walk, walk through the narrative of the Old Testament together. That's one of my favorite things to do. Um, anyway, I'm a nerd. Okay, um, this is why we actually call him Jesus Christ, by the way, right? Christ is not his last name. It's a title. Um, and and, and <clears throat> how does this story we read today help us know that Jesus is that Christ, that anointed one of God? There are many, many ways. And I just want to pull out a few to show you the kinds of stuff happening in the life of Christ and in the way that he works in the story. So first, the wine. First, the wine. The most obvious thing going on here is the miraculous abundance of wine, right? Jesus made 150 gallons of wine after all the other wine had run out. And do you know that throughout the prophets of Israel, one of the signs of the Messianic age, that's what it's called, which means the age or that, that time, that era, when the Messiah will be with his people, one of the signs is an abundance of wine. For example... The prophet Amos gives us this image, uh, it's one of my favorites, of mountains dripping with wine. Normally, it, back in that time, people would very commonly talk about the sides of mountains dripping with dew or water. Mountains normally that drip with water without us doing a thing, well, when this Messiah comes, we'll have wine like that. And wine then symbolizes the, pretty much the same thing it symbolizes today. Community, celebration, abundance, and John is looking back on this first week with Jesus at this wedding. And he sees in that wedding something which reminds him of the Messiah, the Christ. The provision of much wine. Just one clue. Then there's this, these stone jars used for purification. These jars which symbolize our need to be clean before God. These jars which represent all the work that we do to come before God's presence. 
These jars which never clean us enough. It's worth asking what our own jars are. And in that very place, in that very place where we put so much futile work to be clean, God does his miracle. Making an abundance of something which that groom didn't have enough of. John, looking back on that day with Jesus, sees something of what he's experienced in Jesus' interaction with those, with those jars. The Lord of the universe filling first, filling the jars of purification to the brim, and then doing something new with them. And there's this, there's this mysterious interaction with his mom, right? This strange interaction with her son, who we know that he loves his mother. We know that he does. He distances himself from her slightly. In this moment where he's revealing himself a little covertly for who he is, he actually resists relating to her as mother. Woman. When she comes to her son, he distances himself and calls her woman. And then he actually responds to her request as a believer. For he does, in fact, address her concern. She turns and says to the servants, do what he tells you. And uh, friends, I'm convinced, I'm utterly convinced that there is something of our own experience wrapped up in this interaction. How many of us in this room, when we come to God, find him speaking to us strangely or distancing himself from us? And yet the invitation is for us, like Mary, to do whatever he says. One Christian comments on this text that the Beatles got it right. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be. Abundant wine, new cleansing, a new way of relating to God. All things that Israel anticipated with the coming of the Messiah. And if, if me talking that way about just a few, a few different things in the text still seems a little obscure, it's still muddy for you, it's a little dull for you, it's because it is. Remember, this is just the beginning. Jesus was only beginning to reveal himself, John said. This was his first miracle, and most people didn't even know when it happened. Perhaps it would help to imagine, this image is very helpful for me, and you can imagine this happening over the entire gospel account of John, that we're in a room where though the light has come on, it's dim. And it will become brighter and brighter so we can see clearer as clearer and clearer and clearer as the Christ reveals himself in the story. But looking back after some 40 or 50 years, John recognizes that at a wedding just seven days after Jesus was baptized, right? John's writing this some 40 or 50 years after having probably been at that wedding. He's looking back and he recognizes that at that wedding, after Jesus was baptized, he began to reveal himself through the making of wine at the celebration of a new family. And there's still one other major part of the story that we haven't touched yet. And that's Jesus' reason for his strange response to his mother when he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And at a literary level, <laughs> this is something that writers call a prolepsis. I've known this forever, and I just looked it up today. Um, uh, a prolepsis. Somebody say prolepsis. It's the only way you'll remember this. Prolepsis. Prolepsis. Right. A prolepsis. Anybody actually know what that word is? There's one person raised. You know, really? 
Okay. Uh, I didn't know. Um, a prolepsis is when you encounter something in a story before it actually exists or happens. Right? So, for example, if I, if I said he was a dead man when he entered the room, right? That, that, that's probably a kind of phrase or sentence you've heard before. The, the person I'm talking about is not yet dead, but the intent of saying he was a dead man when he entered is telling you that, he, telling you that he's dead to pique your curiosity, to foreshadow the ending and to make you sort of Sherlock your way through the narrative, looking for the reasons that this person would soon be dead. You know if I say he was a dead man, you know that he's going to die. You're just trying to figure out how. In John's gospel, Jesus' hour, my hour, has not come. The hour. Hour is, serves as a prolepsis. It makes us wonder what he means. He hasn't explained the hour yet. It just shows up. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What? What are you talking about? What is it, and why is it a big deal? And when we cast our imaginations into the future and wonder when the hour would come, in that moment, in that moment, when the wine ran out at this wedding and his mother comes to him, Jesus was thinking about his hour. My hour. And though this will continue to unfold throughout the entire gospel this semester as we go through it, Jesus' hour is that moment on the cross when he, the groom, provides food and wine with his body and blood for the whole host of creation who will one day be at his wedding feast. I said earlier that Jesus was thinking about his own wedding, and that's not speculation. He was a single 30-year-old man, okay, and he was thinking about his bride. And so when his mother said we ran out of wine, I suspect it jolted him out of his own thoughts. The suffering that he must go through, the price he was willing to pay, the bride whom he would clean and adorn and who would look radiant walking toward him. But it wasn't time yet for the bride price or the wedding feast. So much stood between this day at this wedding, just seven days after his baptism, and his hour, which was to come. And during that time, he was thinking about his own bride. And then, of course, with his bride on his mind, Jesus does the kinds of things he usually does, which we'll see more of. He provides where we lack. He serves. He covers shame. This groom who ran out of wine, it's beautiful. Never had to experience shame because Jesus in the corner, provided for him. He gives others the credit that he is due. He celebrates with us. This is who he is. This is who God is. And John looked back on this first week with Jesus, and he knows now, in the writing of this gospel, how much that day at that wedding was a sign of things to come and of who God is. Read, four, read six verses in Revelation chapter 21 at the very beginning. Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Read that tonight. As we continue through the gospel in the weeks to come, we will see these themes come out over and over again because this is who Christ is. This is who the Son of God is, and he is making himself known in order that we might believe in him. And the invitation remains, friends, that we would believe in him. This one who always thinks about his bride, this one who gives abundantly out of our lack, this one who would offer his life for ours, that we would believe in him and have life. 
I want to say one quick aside here before end, and that's for any men in the room who squirm a little at a bunch of relational talk. <laughs> Weddings and marriages. And if you didn't catch it yet, it's going to make you really uncomfortable for some of you, that, that, that every single one of us who's in Christ is, is a part of the bride. That we corporately are feminine to him. Men in this room, and anybody, anybody who doesn't grab a hold of this language, I want to invite you to enter into this and to realize some of how God made you. But I also want to encourage you to keep reading. Because the same Jesus, who's all about weddings and making wine and hiding in the corner, in John chapter 2, at the beginning, this same Jesus soon, right after this, went and made himself a whip, like he actually made it. And then he turned over tables and chased people out of the temple. Grace and truth. And one of the challenges for each and every one of us here is to see Jesus for who he is and not just for who we want him to be. Do not tame that lion, friends. <laughs> Let him run wild. We have him for who he is and not for who we make him to be. And my prayer is that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, in the way that he reveals himself, and that you might believe in him and have life eternal. Amen. Let's pray together. And after I'm done and during the last worship set, there's people in the back every week who would love to pray with you if you want to pray. All right. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you help us worship you even now with the gifts that you've given us, our hands, our voices, this time, this room. Um, I thank you for your, your faithfulness in giving us these stories of, of your son and in what you tell us about you, you through him. May you do miracles among us, break hearts open and minds open and help us to believe in you, but not just to believe that you are in the image we make you, but to believe in you as you want to reveal yourself as the Christ, as the son of God. Help us in that, and help us do it together in this place. Would you receive our worship now with joy? Redeem what you need to redeem. Many of us already have empty jars. Do miracles there. Hide our shame. Thank you that you came to serve. We love you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.